Election day has come and gone. Its aftermath has been a flurry of mail-in ballot counting and uncertainty at both the national and state levels. It's kept us quite busy here at the Times Union. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top headlines. The dog that has not yet barked, of course, is the presidential race. We'll get a recap of the latest results in several key state-level races. The Democrats were really confident that they were going to get this supermajority, and it didn't happen. And we'll visit a refugee family living in Albany who's trying to meet the unique challenges of remote schooling and learning English. Everyone is on their devices. Everyone is in different grades and no one has their headphones in, right? This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. There are 100 refugee and immigrant teens and preteens enrolled at the Albany International Center. Since the beginning of the school year, they've been learning remotely due to budget cuts in the Albany City School District that were fueled by the coronavirus pandemic. Reporter Masara Makati recently visited a Congolese family living in Albany to learn about the challenges that their eight children face as both new English learners and remote students. I asked her afterward about the story she wrote. Tell me about the family that you spent time with. This is a family of nine. Um, There are eight children, and then there's the mother, and they are from the Congo. They arrived to the U.S. in 2016, and the mother, Sifa, she had left behind her husband because he couldn't get the refugee status with her family, so she's a single mom here in Albany right now. They have an apartment in West Hill. Now, the children are aged three to 19. And they're all living in this crowded four bedroom apartment in West Hill. And it's quite a sight. I spent a few hours with them on a Monday morning, just watching how the remote learning is going for them. And I think the main word that comes to mind is chaos. Let's learn the sight word, can. Here we go, read it out loud. Everyone is on their devices. Everyone is in different grades. And no one has their headphones in, right? And so you're listening. You can hear one daughter, Basochi, she's listening to her physical education class and and a video about human anatomy. 
Next to her is her sister, Ungwa, and Ungwa is working on an ENL class and working on her English pronunciation and filling out, you know, descriptions of a picture that she's looking at. And then they have these twins um, who are five years old. They're just walking around all over the apartment and jumping up on the furniture and off of the furniture, and they're listening to videos that are helping them learn the alphabet and just really not paying that much attention. I mean, they're five, you know, what can their attention span even be? And then of course, once the class started and there was a teacher, they had a really hard time sitting still. You've got um, another high schooler, another middle schooler, and another grade schooler. And everyone is on their devices. Everyone is watching videos of their teachers um, instructing these classes, these courses. And it was really hard to concentrate. But I think even more than that, there was just this confusion on behalf of these kids on what they were actually doing in their classes. You know, the kids were telling me, um, especially the older students in high school, that there are technological difficulties. Sometimes the teacher may forget to send a link to a homework assignment. Sometimes they feel like they don't have as much access to their teachers as they want to have. That's not necessarily the teacher's fault. It could just be a complete miscommunication on behalf of you know, the students or misunderstanding on behalf of the students. And so it's just trying to navigate I think technology and remote and distant learning in general really can add some challenges to communication. And when you add on top of that, that these are young students and they're not fluent in English and they have a mother who does not even speak English, it makes it a lot harder to coast through remote learning. What's your favorite subject? Oh, I used to love math. Really? You mentioned the story, the eldest, I believe it was Basochi. Is that is she the eldest? Yes, she is. She's 19. You mentioned in the story that she does a lot of work with her younger siblings, kind of helping them stay on track. Um, can you talk a little bit more about her and, and kind of what she's going through? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what ends up happening because Sifa doesn't really speak English that well because she may get distracted with other things in maintaining the home, whether it's cleaning or cooking or whatever it may be. The older siblings, and this tends to happen in low-income families in general, but the older siblings end up, you know, end up having parental responsibilities. And so they can't completely focus on their classes. They have to help out their younger siblings. And you know, there were multiple times where the younger twins, the five-year-old twins, are doing somersaults off the couch in the middle of the class, and Basochi would come, and she would prop them up on the couch and put the iPad in their lap and tell them to sit and stay where they were, and the teacher would confuse her for their mom, and she said, I'm not mother, I'm sister. Um, and, you know, it's not just Basochi, it was also, it was also the two other older students, so it just ends up adding a challenge where in addition to not being able to focus because there's so many distractions around them, they also can't completely focus on their schooling because they have to help out their younger siblings. Let's talk about the Albany International Center. What, what are they saying about the situation? You know, that all these students are, are learning virtually in less than ideal circumstances. What's their kind of take on it? They're very insistent that they are still 
providing these students with all of the services the students had at Albany International Center, despite the fact that the students are now integrated in the school district at large and in the high school at large. I think they know, they understand that there are challenges. They're also kind of banking on the fact that these are younger people who have been using technology for probably most of their lives. And they're hoping that their natural instinct with technology will help them navigate this new type of learning. Um, Mm -hmm. But they also admit, you know, I mean, it was Tom Giglio who told me that, you know, of course, it would be bizarre if all of a sudden their proficiency levels just shot up. You know, it's not that it's not that the administration is expecting that to happen. While there wasn't really a blueprint for how you create a newcomer program, there, there really isn't a blueprint for how you restructure one under a global pandemic and some economic stressors that are faced in the city. But they are hoping that they can at least leverage, you know, the students' technological skills to mitigate any type of slide. Now, the family that you profiled, um, they also, you know, have the assistance of some local organizations that are dedicated to helping refugees and immigrants in the community. What are they saying about the situation? The family that I spoke with is really involved with RISE, the Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of a Mouse. Um, And the operations director, Francis Ngabo, said it's been pretty useless. Um, You know, and he came to the home and he saw the kids and how they were learning. And he said, especially for the younger ones, it's just they're not getting anything out of it. And then for the older ones, it's just too distracting. Um, He did tell me that Rise was working on seeing if there's anything that they can do to help support the families a little bit more, maybe providing For instance, the Boys and Girls Club of the Capital Region started providing a place for children to go where they'll have their employees work with the kids and help them navigate their remote learning. And, you know, they're not teachers, but they're just kind of for the younger kids, making sure they're sitting in place and for maybe the older kids helping them navigate the technology. And I think RISE is maybe looking to offer some sort of a service like that, but it's not 100 percent set in stone as of now. Um, But, you know, he just says exactly what it looks like, that it just doesn't look like it's that fruitful. Now, let's talk about the family again, maybe some of the oldest kids. Did they kind of give you a sense of, you know, where they're looking toward in the future, like what they want to do and where they want to go and their hopes and dreams and things like that? You know what? They actually didn't. (laughs) (laughs) We're just trying to get through this right now, right? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think that's exactly the thing. I think they're just kind of trying to figure out where they are at and trying to figure out how to continue adjusting. So they didn't really talk about, they didn't really talk about the future if they wanted to go to college or, or anything like that. I'll just add a quick anecdote about another technological issue the um, seventh grader, Londani, he was on the phone for about three hours trying to figure out how to, he had gotten locked out of his laptop and he was trying to figure out how to get back into his laptop and trying to figure out how to log back into his account. And mm-hmm. it just took hours for him to even get a hold of anyone. And by the time I had left, he still hadn't figured out how to get back in his classes. So mm-hmm. That's just another example of, you know, it was actually our photographer, Paul Bukowski, was helping him and doing the phone calls with him and trying to talk to people on the other end of the line to help him figure out how to get back into his class. 
So that's just another example of how complicated it can really get. You can read Masara's story and learn more about the Oredi family at timesunion.com. And now let's take a look at what appeared in the Times Union and online this week. Here we are once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top stories this week. Let's start with the big one, the election. We had a big night on Tuesday on a number of levels, national, state and local. Can you give us the highlights? Well, uh, the dog that has not yet barked, of course, is the presidential race. But Joe Biden, as expected, you know, took New York by a commanding margin, though not at least based on the initial numbers by the humongous, you know, two to one margin that the polls had been predicting. You know, we could have an entire show about um, the performance of pollsters, not only in New York, but kind of across the uh, across the nation and Republicans genuinely, I think it's fair to say, walked away from this year's vote feeling pretty good in New York about their performance. They appear likely to pick up a couple of seats in the state Senate, though Democrats will preserve their majority. Senate Democrats, of course, had hoped that they might be able to get to a super majority to match what the Democratic Majority Conference has in the Assembly. It's pretty much a a deadlock is not going to happen. They will, however, hold on to the majority and not in the kind of barely, you know, 32 votes that um, they need. You need to have a 32 vote majority in the chamber. And if you only have, you know, 32 or 33, as Democrats found out uh, the last time they controlled the chamber a decade ago, it can be very problematic. In other words, one member who will not go along with the conference's wishes can can really kind of stop the show. And um, we have a whole po- series of podcast episodes in our sister podcast about that very situation that you describe yeah, yeah, on Capital yeah. Confidential. Yeah, Tales from the Coup, a multi-episode uh, narrative arc that um, that was put together by our friend Dave Lombardo. That's a, still a fascinating listen and not just for political junkies. But And on the congressional front, it appears that Claudia Tenney has bested Anthony Brindisi over in the Utica area and out on Staten Island. Uh, Nicole Maliotakis appears to be on her way to Congress as well. So that's, um, that's good news for Republicans. Good news, of course, within the larger context of the GOP not holding any statewide office, you know, governor, controller, you know, neither U.S. senator or Republicans, uh, attorney general, uh, one can go on and on. But this was definitely a recovery from the disastrous uh, Republican losses of 2018. Uh, Let's switch a little bit to the NTSB released its or published, excuse me, its final report on the Schoharie limo crash. Are there any updates with that that, you know, we didn't see at the end of September when they the board approved the report? There is more granular evidence about this horrible October 6, 2018 crash out in Schoharie County that killed 20 people. There is also a pretty detailed timeline of the state's interaction with the limousine company, Prestige Limousine, of Wilton and how um, the State Department of Transportation and Department of Motor Vehicles 
missed over and over again opportunities for potentially getting this vehicle off the road, that these two state agencies knew full well that the limo company operator was a bad actor who kept this vehicle on the road, despite the fact that um, it was told that the vehicle was not in the proper inspection program, that it needed to essentially be treated as a bus. You know, lawyers for the families of the victims of the crash, as well as the media, including the Times Union, have foiled for records pertinent to those interactions between uh, the uh, DMV and the DOT and Prestige Limousine. And we have continually been stonewalled in this effort. An initial court case went against these two state agencies. They are still pressing this matter in court, claiming that it would not be right for them to release the materials first, they said, before the final NTSB report is out. Well, guess what? It's out now. And now they're additionally claiming that they, it can't be put out um, because there is an ongoing criminal case against Nauman Hussein, who was the operator of Prestige Limousine when the accident occurred. Their excuses for not putting out this information is becoming increasingly threadbare, which unfortunately is uh, a tendency of the Cuomo administration related to FOIL requests. Well, there's no doubt our own Larry Rulison will stay on the case there, uh, trying to uncover that information and and see the story develop. So you can go to timesunion.com to read his coverage of this, which he's been covering for two years since the very day the accident happened. Larry's a business reporter, but he has been covering this story in the way that any any good digging reporter would do. He's covered it as an investigative project, and he has been on it now for more than two years. And he has turned up more about the state response, about Prestige Limousine, about the family behind this limousine company than any other reporter in the nation. He's just done a a yeoman's job on it. That's very remarkable. Switching topics, uh, the city of Albany, uh, there's a commission study from an independent uh, investigator that determined that there were higher rates of black arrests in Albany all around. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that study and what came out of it? Yes. Steve Hughes wrote about this report that was commissioned earlier this year by city officials. And what it found was that there appear to be, well, not that there appear to be, there are definitely discrepancies in the number of black people who are arrested or who are subject to interactions with the police than white residents are. The problem in determining uh, or attempting to determine whether or not racial bias is at the root of this is that in many cases, the Albany Police Department's uh, record keeping is so bad that it's uh, in some cases hard to determine if somebody who was, shall we say, subject to a traffic stop was white or black or you name it. This report should be troubling for uh, city leaders and for the police. I'm not sure it is telling them anything that they should not have been able to surmise, at least based on the data that has been given over to the Times Union and other journalists in the past. But of course, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Governor Cuomo's uh, executive order uh, requiring all police departments or law enforcement entities to uh, suggest uh, how they would uh, reform and remake their their practices. There's new uh, urgency behind this effort. A lot of this report is going to end up 
uh, being considered by the, the kind of large, broad uh, coalition effort that Albany has undertaken that has a spring deadline to offer up proposals for serious change. All right. Well, you can read Steve Hughes's reporting and the reporting on all the other topics that we discussed at timesunion.com. Casey, thanks for checking in and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, Jess. After the break, an election recap from the Times Union Capitol Bureau reporters. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The presidential election has dominated the spotlight this week, but amid all of the Twitter feed refreshing and so-called doom scrolling, news of several key races in the New York State Legislature have not escaped notice. Amanda Fries, Edward McKinley, and Chris Bragg covered the Capitol for the Times Union, and they did a little debrief of the state-level election surprises and still undecided races on the most recent episode of our sister podcast, Capitol Confidential. Here's a snippet of their conversation. We're waiting on results for many races that are uh, relatively close because of there just being so many absentee ballots out there that still need to be counted. However, there certainly are some races that appear to be uh, shaping up for Republicans, which wasn't initially anticipated. And you had uh, the Republican committee chair, Nick Langworthy, as well as Senate Minority Leader Rob Ort talking about how the Democrats were really confident that they were going to get this supermajority, and it didn't happen. And what you saw last night was a repudiation of one-party rule. It was a repudiation. There's no other way to, to slice it. In a blue state where President Biden won, where you had record turnout, Republicans picked up seats last night. Ed, I know you've done a lot of coverage when it comes to the supermajority here in the Senate that the Democrats were looking at. What are your thoughts here? Is there any opportunity for them to pull out a supermajority or, you know, are they looking at, you know, maybe a new a couple of new seats, but that's about it? So never say never. You know, there's a lot of uh, absentee ballots, hundreds of thousands across the state that haven't been counted yet. And it's possible even probable in some of the races that that's going to be enough to overcome the vote count that the Republicans opened up a lead in on election day. But in a lot of the races, you know, the Republicans really seem to run ahead of where they thought they would be. And I think that the story in New York is pretty much the same as the story that we're seeing nationwide, which is that Democrats didn't have the big night that they were really hoping for and that many of them were expecting or thinking was a real, real possibility. And that the narrative could shift as, as some of the absentee ballots come in, but as it stands now, it doesn't look likely that they're gonna take a supermajority this year. Chris, what have you seen when it comes to, you know, the election results that are coming in? I know that you've uh, checked on some of the local board of elections and the results that they've posted to kind of get a better understanding of some of these Senate races and where things are at. You know, as, as Ed mentioned, the, the narrative was that the Democrats might even be able to pick up two seats to go from 40 to 42 and have a supermajority. You have to remember that 2018, when 
Democrats went from having, I think, 31 seats and being in the minority to having 40 seats was a huge gain. That was nine seats during a year when Donald Trump wasn't even, he wasn't at the top of the ticket. So there was a lot of Democratic enthusiasm against Trump, but not Trump voters coming out solely for him like some of them do. So it was actually maybe uh, in some ways unrealistic that they were going to go up to 42 seats when you think about it now with the strength of Trump. But, you know, in any case, it was kind of strange where Democrats did well and Democrats did poorly. On Long Island, Democrats seem to perhaps have lost three of the seats that they picked up in 2018. Two of those races are still really close. So we'll have to see how the absentee ballots come out. In the Hudson Valley, they might lose a seat. In Westchester, uh, the former county executive, Rob Astorino, is ahead. And in Southern Brooklyn, Andrew Gennardis, who uh, was also a 2018 winner over a long-time incumbent, Marty Golden, uh, looks like he could lose. But all those, you know, with, with Democrats expected to do well on absentee ballots, could be in play still for Democrats. But then they won probably three seats upstate, two in the Rochester area, and one that was held by a Republican also in, uh, in Western New York. So it's kind of shifting from Democratic power downstate on Long Island um, up to upstate where, where Democrats previously only had a single state senator. So that could be a change in, in how they do policy um, when they get back in January. And just to piggyback off what Chris said, by virtue of the fact that the Democrats had such a big night in 2018 to take so many seats and they had such a wide majority, the way the system is structured is just that when you have that many seats, you go into the election with a disadvantage to gain more seats because you have to defend so many more seats than your opponents did. So the Republicans look to be in a position that they might actually pick up a few seats this cycle. And that's largely going to be on the strength of taking back seats that the Democrats have won in recent years. And for many, many years from you know the early 20th century to like 2008, Republicans kind of had a stranglehold in the state Senate. So the fact that the Democrats, even after a night that we're basically describing as, as a tough night for them where things didn't go their way, but they're still holding on to a sizable majority. If you'd asked somebody about that you know, 20 years ago, they would have said, that's unbelievable that they even have a majority at all. One of the big questions to answer here too is like, what does this mean practically in terms of how the legislation might shape out next session? And I think that the interesting thing to see will be what the appetite will be in the legislature to stand up to Cuomo next session. Uh, I think that if they had taken a supermajority, there would have been conversations that would have been had about, okay, the assembly is a supermajority, the Senate is a supermajority. Now we can, in theory, do what we want, even if Cuomo doesn't agree with us. And now those conversations won't be forced by nature of the fact that they have a power that they didn't have before, but it'll be interesting to see to what degree those conversations are still had. And also to keep in mind, uh, especially on Long Island and downstate, Republicans are, are really kind of crediting some of the civil unrest that we've seen in cities, particularly New York City, but across uh, New York, as well as in cities in other states, along with bail and discovery reforms that were passed earlier this year and then saw some changes in the budget in April, they're really crediting 
those changes as a reason for voters to come out and vote for a Republican because the Republicans have been very vocal opponents of the bail reform and the criminal justice reforms that we've seen this year either take effect or even be been passed. So they're definitely they definitely feel like some of the issues that they've championed from the very beginning have helped them uh, stay afloat. And certainly that's going to be something to watch next year as they enter budget negotiations to see what other things might be changed. Because we all know that uh, New York's budget includes a lot of policy decisions along with the uh, financial. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features.